This is Lead with a Question. When you have success and and, uh, people, you know, want you to sign their body parts, you know, that could go to your ego, (laughs) right? Um, When you're the focus of the spotlight, it's hard to walk off stage and turn that off. I was very fortunate that I had success late. And I also had so many people who were directly responsible for my career. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, Connect with guests who embody these principles, and whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. In The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien captures a solid bit of advice from Bilbo directed towards his nephew, Frodo. He says, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. In the pursuit of success, it's tempting to chase shiny objects. That's certainly true in the music industry. But in spite of having two platinum albums, hundreds of credits on soundtracks, ads, and TV shows, and composing a song that brought America together in the days following 9-11, today's guest has stayed grounded, even as he has continued to dream big dreams. Together, we'll consider the question, how can you stay true to yourself as a leader? A conversation with John Androsik, AKA Five for Fighting, on this episode of Lead with a Question. You know, it was certainly surreal, Uh, still is talking about it 20 years later. I had success very late in the music business. I was a 15-year overnight success. Uh, you know, I, I, I started playing the piano at three years old. My mom was a piano teacher, and, and I had, you know, as a, as a young teenager, these fantasies of being a rock star and doing my karate kicks like David Lee Roth and, and, uh, and of course, listening to Purple Rain, you know, 10,000 times, and, and, of course, Billy and Elton, and, and, uh, and it was my passion. I was very fortunate to, to know what I wanted to do, but certainly in the arts, that doesn't guarantee every, anything. And, and I struggled, you know, for years. Um, so you're a good songwriter, not a great singer. You're a good singer, but not quite the songwriter we need. There's always a reason for people to, to shoot you down. Um, but I had a certain will and a perseverance that I was going off the cliff. And, and uh, I, you know, Superman was one of thousands of songs I wrote um, between the, the time I wanted to do it and, and the time people heard a song. And, and uh, again, I think the song itself um, is a song I couldn't write today. Uh, it's not easy to be me. Um, but, you know, when you're 
in your mid-20s and you've been dreaming of something your whole life and you're kind of hitting the doors, you know, the, that sentiment makes sense for a young, frustrated artist. Um, but at the same time, I knew when I wrote Superman, I had something um, different because when I played it for people, they would react differently. And uh, it, was, it wasn't actually my first single. My first single was a song called Easy Tonight. Um, but Easy Tonight got us to another song. And they said, what song do you want? And they really implied, well, this is it. Either this works or you got to get a real job. And, and, and I said, Superman. And they said, no, no, no. It's the age of Lilith, Lilith Fair, boy bands, grunge music, male singer-songwriter's dead. And, uh, and I said, well, if I'm going down with one, I'm going down with this song. And um, initially, radio didn't want to play it. And this was long before 9-11, of course. Uh, radio didn't want to play it too slow, too deep. And, uh, and it got to a tipping point where it was kind of going to go away. But there was a few radio programmers that, that supported it. Uh, for some reason, it went number one in the Philippines. We love you, the Philippines. Go figure. But it wasn't a big, big hit. But then it kind of, uh, it kind of, it kind of grabbed a little bit of, of, of not just the country, but around the world. But then, of course, 9-11 comes. Um, and I was in actually London on, on 9-11. Um, and like so many folks, uh, I just started, you know, I saw the first plane hit, started calling everybody new New York. Saw the second plane hit, sat there stunned, and um, and I was you know stuck over there for a week. Of course, there were no planes flying, and I, I'll never forget getting on the the plane back to to Chicago from Heathrow, and the pilot coming on and saying, "I know you're nervous. I'm going to get you there. Um, we'll be fine." And I I never felt more in love with a pilot than that day, <laughs> and I literally kissed the tarmac when I landed, and I didn't realize that Superman was becoming this this song that 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 recognized the heroes of 9-11 um till i got back um and and saw how the the media was using it in many of their montages and then i finally went to new york city and then i really saw that that superman um, was a reflection of of so many emotions uh around 9-11 and then of course playing the concert for new york you guys could imagine that i mean here i am this this relatively young guy just getting used to hearing a song on the radio and all of a sudden I'm sitting there at Madison Square Garden, live television with every living influence of mine, Elton, Billy, Clapton, Townsend, go down the list, uh, they're there. So that alone was just, you know, um, challenging, but also illuminating because I saw very early in my career that music can matter beyond fame, fortune, charts, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all those things, you know, and it wasn't just singing Superman there, it was watching The Who come on stage and blowing the roof off Madison Square Garden and seeing those people, mostly who'd been down at ground zero for a month doing the unimaginable, for the first time be able to release and scream and sing and cry. And I'll never forget singing Superman and, and looking at this guy in Madison Square Garden, this big burly union get worker with two beers in his hand, you know, singing with me and crying and releasing. So very early, I, I saw a, a different side of why music can matter. Uh, and this is a very long answer to your question. And that song has taught me a lot of things over the years. And we can talk about some of those that, that, uh, that I've learned, lessons I've learned through Superman. Um, and just timing is good. I just actually, last week, I did an event at, uh, in Nashville for Gary Sinise's foundation. Um, I'm an ambassador for the Gary Sinise Foundation. And he brought 
many of the firefighters that were at Madison Square Garden at the concert for New York, and, and I hadn't seen them in, in over 20 years, and played Superman. They kind of stood at attention, and it really brought it all back. Um, and music has that unique power, you know, to, to move mountains and permeate borders in ways other things don't. So I saw that firsthand very young, and um, I think it certainly shaped me and, and not only my music, but some of my missions. And, but I'm always, always be grateful for that little song that nobody wanted to play that I wrote in 45 minutes. I, I wish I had that 45 minutes back. I've been looking for it ever since, but I'm, I'm grateful for that 45 minutes. Yeah. I've tried a little bit of songwriting as well. And I call those gift songs, you know, the, yeah. the ones that just sort of distill on your soul. And it's like you're trying to, you know, go as, as quick as you can to just try to capture it. And then you wonder, where did that even come from? But why do you think that that process of, of coming together with so many people um, and whether it was rallying around the the song that you wrote or just the experience itself, but what do you think that music does for people, especially when they may be experiencing some form of tragedy? Well, the great thing about music is people take it and apply it to their lives in the way they need it. I'll never forget after Superman came out in a hundred years, I started interacting with many of our troops um, overseas. And I saw firsthand how they use music in so many different ways. And the same song. Maybe it's to escape. Maybe it's to pump themselves up for a mission. Um, maybe it's to um, calm down for a mission. But the beautiful thing about music is that we take it and we apply it to our lives in ways that matter to us. It frankly doesn't really matter what I wrote Superman about, what I wrote 100 years about, the riddle, you know, go down the list. Um, it's people can take it and apply it to their lives. And that's that's why I think music um, is unique. But it also, again, it's universal. You don't necessarily even have to understand the language. I, I was just in Ukraine playing this new Ukraine song, Can One Man Save the World, with Ukrainian orchestra. And it was a very powerful moment, probably the, with the exception of maybe the concert for New York, the most powerful musical moment of my life. Sitting in a bombed out airport outside of Kiev with these Ukrainians, these generals around, playing this song in the middle of a war zone with these people in the orchestra who, who'd either lost somebody or, or had somebody at the front. And after we played a few takes, I looked at my partner and said, they don't even know the words. They don't even they don't have, they don't speak English, but the, the kind of the musical experience and the melody and, and the dynamics that brought us all together in a way that nothing else can. Um, so I do, you know, I, I, I have, I've lived it and I've seen firsthand how music, you know, can permeate borders, can move mountains, do things, raise awareness, um, you know, lead us to some truths um, and also mark our lives. Right. You know, most of most of the music we love are, is music we loved when we are teenagers and young adults. Right. Because that's when we consume music. That's what we talk about. It'll never be as good as it was when we were kids. And, and we're right. Um, but uh but, you know, music, when you think about moments of your lives and you hear songs, it brings you back where, you know, I remember where I was when I first heard Every Breath You Take. You know, I was on Zuma 6 in Malibu, you know. So, you know, that's the other beautiful thing. It, it marks our lives. And it also marks history. You look at history through music, certainly the protest songs of the 60s. So to me, it's such a powerful medium. And, you know, to have a couple songs that, that are those songs for some people, 
um, is very humbling. I think as a songwriter, as you said, those gifts are very rare. 100 years took four months to write. The riddle took a year. You know, a couple of the new songs come quicker. But yeah, when you get those gifts, it it certainly, um, you thank, you know, you thank the stars, you thank your God, um, because it doesn't seem like you even write them. Um, Of course, if you're Paul McCartney, you write, you write one every day, but we're not all Paul McCartney. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how something uh, is it's not as simple, but as, um, you know, something, something in music can touch, you know, and reach, you know, parts of your soul, uh, that other things can't necessarily. And as you're describing that kind of framing of your life, that was, that was my experience, uh, with a hundred years. Uh, and it, you know, and it came at a time in my life when I was on a journey, it was, I, I was about to get married. And then, you know, as I had kids, it was something that I was reflecting on, you know, because you, you have those, it's sequential, right? And it's these, these, this kind of passing of time. Um, and I thought about, and I, you know, when I'd sing it back to myself, it's, it was inspiration for, you know, kind of, yeah, framing my life. Uh, and then likewise with the riddle, right? You're having an experience. It's a conversation between a father and son. And, you know, while, you know, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about how kind of lightning strikes, right? And you have this moment of inspiration and the magic of what can happen with lyrics and with the music and all these things that combine these forces. I'm curious too, like, cause there is also baked into that intention, right? And there's kind of some first principles about creating something. And, you know, for you, what have been some of those first principles or those things that have influenced your music the most? Yeah, I think um, you said a word simple, um, which, which I think for all artistry, uh, is something I think we kind of push to the side a little bit. Um, sometimes simple is not easy. <laughs> it can be very hard to write something that sounds simple, but something that, that is easy to digest, um, and not over your head or, or overly thought out sometimes is what resonates. Um, hundred years is just a post-it note to myself that at some point in our lives, we all send to ourselves, like recognize the moment, appreciate the moment. It's not always good, but here, here I was, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd live my dream. I had a song people knew and, um, I was playing concerts and people were singing my song back to me. And what, what was I thinking about? I was either future tripping. How do I parlay this? What do I do next? You know? Or I was, you know, dwelling in the past. Oh, man, I should have done that. I should have done this if I only done that. And I was sitting there one day. And and the thing that really brought it home was I'd finally had children. When you have children, your perspective changes. And I had these little kids on my lap. And I'm like, man, you know, it's pretty good right now. It's not always going to be this way. But can you at least stop and recognize what's happening? And I think that applies to not just successes, but sometimes our failures or our struggles. Can you just recognize what's happening right now and address the now, um, live in the now, which is so hard for many of us who particularly if we're in business or we're ambitious, we're always trying to like, you know, move the bar. Um, and that's what 100 years was. It was like, you know, just recognize now. And I wrote it. And, and there was a certain reason, there was a certain honesty and integrity in, in where it came from. It wasn't like, let me listen to the top 10 hits right now and try to regurgitate a hit. Um, so there's certainly that. But to be honest with you, 
there are some kind of more boring things that really I think are equally critical. We talked about two songs, Superman and 100 Years. You know, I've written thousands of songs. I write 100 songs to get 10 on a record. For your older audiences who are listening, we can explain what a record is later. Um, so a lot of it is just pure work ethic. You know, it's, it's pure work ethic. Um, I have to write a lot of songs to get a couple people here. And, and, and I think it also goes to perseverance, you know, just keeping your head down, um, whatever comes at you. So these traits that I think make people successful, you know, and we can talk about what that word means too later, um, really have nothing to do with the art. It's just, it's just, you know, kind of these, these true, true, truisms of, you know, staying humble. Success can bring its own challenges. I've seen many people that had a, a one hit and uh, for reasons that had nothing to do with their artistry or talents, they did not have a career. So, so many things, you know, um, you know, that you guys talk about every, every, every podcast were critical to what I do. When, when I talk about why I'm, you know, I've had this career for 20 years, kind of my talents are, I don't even mention, um, you know, there's people much better singers, much better songwriters than me. Um, it's the other things that I think allow us to, to survive the downtimes, but be able to persevere and, and, um, and kind of, if you're fortunate like me to, to, to live your passion, your childhood passion. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think for a lot of people who don't have that career in the music industry or, or any type of, I think our artistic endeavor, um, there can be a lot of assumptions made about, you know, what, what drives success? Well, it's, it's the genius, it's the talent alone, but, uh, it sounds like what you're describing is, is a concept that's more about, you know, hard work beating talent, um, every day. And, uh, I think that's a really important takeaway. Um, as you were describing, you know, different people that you've, you've interacted with in the music industry, um, cause you hear a lot about how sometimes if your feet aren't kind of firmly planted that getting into the, you know, uh, an industry like music, um, over time can sort of, you know, unseat you and, and shift you away from maybe, you know, your, your original, um, goals in life, your original principles. So my question for you is, have you ever experienced something like that in your own life? And if so, you know, how did that go for you? What types of things did, did you learn along the way about, I guess, staying rooted to your core principles? Of course. I mean, you know, when you have success and, and, uh, people, you know, want you to sign their body parts, you know, that could go to your ego. <laughs> right. Um, and, um, and yes, you're always kind of, you know, at, when you're the focus of the spotlight, it's hard to it's hard to walk off stage and turn that off. Um, I was very fortunate that I had success late. Um, I wasn't 19, 18 years old. And I also had so many people who were directly uh, responsible for for my career um, that I could point to and say, without you doing that, I'm not here. And so I understood it wasn't all about me. Um, I also didn't have massive success, you know? So I had a song people knew, I some some records, but I wasn't in a place where, you know, you know, I was only as good as my next record. 
The other thing I think that really helped me was is I had um, another job. I was working at our family business, uh, a manufacturing business that makes shopping carts. And it's been in our family for, geez, 80 years. My dad left his job at NASA to run the family business when I was young, and I'd been working there my whole life. And even through my success, I would come in and, and participate in the business. So whatever was happening in the shallow world of entertainment, I would find myself a few times a year at least um, walking into a place where people worked really hard. Um, the American dream was alive and well. Um, nobody really cared about you know having a number one song in the country. And uh, at the same time, you, you were responsible for the livelihoods of 300 people. And, uh, and you did everything from get the loans for the new building to sweep the floors. So I had that kind of grounding mechanism that I think was really important for me. Um, and also gave me a little freedom in that, you know, if the whole music business goes away, I can support myself and, and, and uh, have something to do. Uh, so I think those things really put me in a different space than many artists. Um, I also, you know, when I had kids, I had to make the decision of, you know, do you sacrifice some of the career to be a dad? Um, so, you know, I went through a lot of these things that everybody goes through that's maybe not, you know, a rock star or whatever that is. So, yeah, yeah, you you, you always find yourself um, thinking, you know, when it's a me business and everything, I'm the guy at the piano, I'm the guy singing the song. Um, it's easy to get wrapped up in that. But, um, but I also had some really, you know, kind of interesting mentors um, in, inside the music business and out. And my dad being the first one, um, as I said, he was a rocket scientist, kind of a genius guy. Um, but one of the most humble, unassuming uh, people, fair, integrity, um, whether he's at NASA or running the family business. You know, to, so my dad was a great influence. But also there were some rock stars, a guy named Rudy Sarzo I met as a young songwriter. He was, uh, it was almost like almost famous. The dude, he's a bass player, played with Ozzy, Whitesnake. Um, when I met him, he was with Quiet Riot, kind of on top of the world. But turned out he was a closet-like songwriter fan. He liked, you know, Barry Manilow. <laughs> Who knew? And we became friends and, and he mentored me. And, and I would go to some of these Whitesnake concerts and everybody's, you know, throwing underwear at the guy and whatever. But he's like a very you know, out, off stage when he's not licking his bass, you know, he's this family man, dog lover, businessman, um, very pro-freedom because he was Cuban um, and had so much integrity. And, and so you, you know, you look at a guy like that, and you're like, well, okay, um, I can see it. So I, I could spend an hour talking about other mentors. But yeah, I, I think, um, uh, and of course, marrying my wife too, who was in the business, you know, whenever I got, you know, over my skis, she would certainly put me back in my place. <laughs> so, so I've had a lot of folks that kind of keep me grounded. Um, but sometimes that's hard, hard to do, especially after kind of some, some large successes. I, I've said this many times. A lot of times success brings challenges that are equally or sometimes more challenging than, you know, maybe non-success or, or failing. And, and, and to deal with those, um, I think, are critical to, to continuing uh, to, to to, to do what you want to do. Yeah. Do you have any, um, either examples of, um, maybe things that you would have done differently if you had a do over or yeah. What, what are some of the, the more challenging lessons that you've had to learn along the way? 
you know, I, w- I, w- I wish I reached out to more artists and did more collaboration. Um, I was very self-focused, and maybe that was one reason I had success, but I also had opportunities to collaborate with other people, to, to have experiences um, beyond just what I was doing, both in music and outside of it, especially early in my career. Um, that's changed in the, in, in the last 10, 15 years. You know, I, I do things differently now. I do keynotes. I meet organizations. I, I do projects that have no commercial possibility for success. And I, I work with incredible organizations like Gary's Sinisa Foundation and, you know, Augie's Quest for ALS and, and of course, many veterans and, and stuff like that. But I think earlier in my career, I wish I would have, you know, when some of the calls came in and said, hey, you want to do this project with, with so-and-so, I, I wish I would have said yes. Um, but again, I think because I had success late, you know, I was so focused on, I, I want to do this again next year and I got to write a song <laughs> so I can do this next year. And, and, uh, and also doing every dog and pony show that the record label wanted me to do. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you're asked to do you really don't want to do, but you got to do it, you know, um, you know, from the business side, the promotion side and, and, um, but yeah, you know, uh, and then my personal life and the personal side, I wish I made more friends. Uh, again, I was so kind of, sometimes many of us are so obsessed with our ambition for what we want to do. We pour everything into our job or, or our dream and we forget the rest of life. And, um, and I think, you know, um, I wish I did that more than anything artistically. I wish I did more personal things, uh, in my, you know, thirties and forties and develop relationships, um, and just had like, you know, a good support system with friends and stuff. And, and I did not. So I, I do, I do regret that. Um, and I, I you know, I'm again, again, we could all share stories. Um, but I do think it's important to think of things outside of just your, your ambition, uh, which can be hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, John. I'm curious too, like in the, in the context that you did, you know, shape the songs that you did and, and you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of quantity, right? So there's a lot there and then, and maybe narrowing down where the best of were, um, did you have a process or was there kind of core people in your, t- in, in your group, you know, that you trusted, right. To, kind of be the filter and, and to see what would rise and, and how did that process work, you know, for, for you to get, you know, to where you were? Yeah, there's certainly were some folks that I trusted, you know, kind of, it's hard to edit yourself every night at midnight. You think you wrote like Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Um, then you wake up the next day. So, uh, at the same time, everybody's, you know, a genius in the business and until it doesn't work and then they lose your phone number. So, I did have a few core, you know, my wife was one, Carla, she was a music publisher. She signed me to my first record deal. So having her with me through this whole journey has been critical. She has no problem giving me her honest opinion. Um, And a few other folks in the business too, that I would kind of send songs to. Um, But also I think, you know, it's important as creators to trust our gut. Um, I've made many decisions in my career. Some went well, some different, some did not, but the ones where I trusted my gut, uh, here, for example, I had a song called Chances. And as a songwriter, you're always looking for impressions. And, and you, there's, uh, there's many ways to do that. Hear a song on the radio, uh, films, advertising. And uh, one thing I've had a lot of success with is licensing my songs to films. 
And uh, it's great because people hear them, then they hear them on the radio, they like them, your song does well. And Chances was tempted into a big old blockbuster movie, uh, one that does a half billion dollars every summer. We know the formula. Not a great movie, but for me, a great movie because a zillion people are going to see it, and my song was the end title. And then another little film company came to me and said, hey, John, uh, we have this movie, and we'd like to use your song in it. And I said, guys, you know, it's tempting this big blockbuster. They said, we know. But we know you're a sports guy. We know you're a family guy. Will you at least read the script? And I did. And, and I called him back. I said, okay, you got me on the hook. You know, tell me your marketing plan. And they said, well, we want to be honest with you. There's not a big budget. There's a star in it, but pro- probably not many people are going to see it. And I was like kind of devastated because I felt this song really belonged in this, this film. So I said, you guys, it's Hollywood. Lie to me. Make something up. Okay. <laughs> Give me a reason. <laughs> um, but long story short, at the end of the day, I pulled the song from the big blockbuster and I put this in, put it in this little movie nobody was going to see. Um, my record t- company was furious with me. My manager was furious with me. My wife didn't talk to me for a week. But there was something in my gut that said, you know what? This song belongs in this movie. Um, that movie was The Blind Side um, and, you know, became the biggest sports movie in history. And, and, um, and trusting my gut certainly worked in that case. Does it always go that way? No. I could give you examples where I did the same thing and it was a disaster. But, you know, the ones where I trusted my gut and it goes off the rails, I don't lose sleep about those. The ones where people pushed me and pressured me and I kind of went against my instincts and made a decision and it didn't go well, those are the ones I think about. So I I really think it's, you know, it's kind of personal integrity too and understanding the value of failure and understanding the critical nature. If you're not failing at some point, you're probably not coming close to your potential. You know, rational risk, I'm sure you guys talk about. You know, I'm an exercise in failure. Most of my songs um, end up in the trash. Um, you know, if I had a bat- batting average of Mookie Betts, a songwriter, I would be Elton John. So, so understanding that failure is part of growing, part of getting better, part of your business, and going with your gut and failing is 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 something more important. Some is at times more important than your successes. So, but it took me a while to learn that. <laughs> you know, I wasn't thinking that way at 25, but. Um, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but uh, for me, certainly that's my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're answering too, I think a question a lot of people have is, you know, and as we lean into this future that is far more creative and you know, we think about, so at Brave Corps, we try to, we, our focus is inspiring you know, leaders to be more creative and creatives to be better leaders. And you, know, you shared you know, the power of humility. You've talked about, you know, how we can you know, focus on others and kind of you know, pull our ego back and integrity. Uh, these are powerful principles. Uh, and then what you just said about uh, you know, having, having the right perspective about, about failure. Um, one of our advisors uh, is uh, friends uh, is Ed Catmull. He started Pixar and you know, he talks a lot about failure too. And you know, they, they've had, you know, and before things get to the screen, it's you know, iteration upon iteration. They've scrapped so much to get there. Um, and so that seems like th- there are a lot of those principles that cross over and, you know, interestingly too, you're in, you're in the business world as a leader, uh, you know, with a business while you've also been very creative, uh, and had an impact in the world. 
And so curious, are there other things that you've seen cross over that you would share with, you know, the audience that people that are aspiring to be better leaders, uh, you know, to do better as creatives too. What, what other insights would you share? You know, they, they almost sound trivial. Um, but I think there's a reason, you know, we talk about, um, humility, integrity, honesty. I watched my dad do it at precision wire. You know, I, I try to do it in my career. When I talk to kids, I'm like, you know, you need to be the same person when you walked into a radio station begging for a spin as the person who walks in with the number one song in the country. That could be very hard to do, but those relationships will pay dividends for years. I truly believe my success is not due to my songs. It's due to my relationships I've had with people. A lot of times in life, you're at a, you know, what you do is, is on the tipping point, right? It can go either way. And if it goes well, usually that's a relationship. Somebody that believes in you wants to give you another, another shot or wants you to win. Um, you know, listening sounds so trivial, listening to others. Um, you know, most managers are very good at listening to themselves talk. <laughs> I'm very good at listening to myself talk like right now, but sometimes it's hard to listen to others and give them the first voice. I've, I've gotten so many songs from just listening around the world and listening to conversations and listening to people. Um, I think saying you, you made a mistake, owning up to your mistakes. Um, being say, you know, I screwed up. I did this. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to address it, try not to do it again. Um, sometimes that's hard for people to do. And, and, you know, here at Precision Wire, you know, when you have a big business, you're always making some mistakes. And I think it's important to, to be proactive in, 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 in saying, oh, hey, by the way, I, I screwed up and here's where I'm trying to do it. Before people come to you and say, what's going on? Say, oh, you know, things like that. Sharing, sharing the success. I think, again, it's easy to like when something's go well to own it. But it's so much um, it's so it's, it's so much more beneficial to share it with those who are part of it inspires them to continue to do the work, to want to be with you. And we have a great new GM here at Precision Wires, 30 years old, very young kid, has a lot of, a lot of potential um, and doing a lot of things helping the business. And, and there's a tendency to take ownership of that. But you know what? You, know, you need to recognize those that are with you, um, that, that are supporting you and, and, and are going to grow your business or your artistry, my band members. I, I don't have a band. Five for Fighting is not a band. I hire everybody, but these guys are part of my family. And I realize my show's only as good as my drummer. You know, if, if I'm the quarterback, I'm only as good as my offensive line. You know, to understand that those guys are, are critical to what I'm doing. And the last one I'll talk about is something that's kind of new to me, um, though I've talked about it for years in my keynotes. Uh, a funny story about Superman. When Superman first came out, uh, the record company called me and said, you know, John, something very strange is happening with your song. Old people are buying your record. I'm like, what do you mean old people are buying my record? They said, yeah, people in their 30s and 40s are buying your record. <laughs> and uh, here I am, what, 59? I'm still insulted. But, um, but what they really meant was adults were buying my record, were buying Superman. And that didn't happen. Teenagers buy records. 
And they said, we, we just don't understand why this song is, is, is really kind of permeating um, 30s and 40-somethings. But over the years, it's made sense to me. Um, talking to business leaders, um, politicians, um, go down the list, people who've really been moved by that song. Um, my Superman is different than other Supermans. There's been seven or eight Superman songs. But in my song, Superman doesn't want to be Superman. What's the first line? I can't stand to fly, right? Um, who wouldn't want to fly? <laughs> um, in my song, Superman doesn't want to be Superman because he doesn't want to be everything for everybody. That pressure is something you cannot sustain. And so many of us uh, who want to be leaders and are leaders feel this obligation to put everybody else first. And that's certainly an honorable sentiment. Um, but it's something that I don't think you can stay in it um, and continue to do your job as well as you, you, as well as you need to with that pressure. Family, business, friends, personal well-being. And that's why I think so many people relate to Superman, that we can't be perfect. We can't be everything for everyone. And if we don't take care of ourselves first, the whole house of cards may collapse. And just to put a little kind of postscript, again, I would tell this at my keynotes and I talk about it. And some people would embrace it. Some people wouldn't. Some people would change their lives. Um, but I never really lived it uh, until the pandemic. Uh, my dad's 84 years old, pandemic hits, he has to quarantine. All of a sudden, I'm running our business, Precision Wire. Uh, we, you know, we don't get shut down because we're essential. I got 300 people, um, many of whom I've known since I was 10 years old, uh, depending on me to keep the business afloat and keep their livelihoods afloat. And it was very challenging. Um, we had, we were ground zero for COVID. Had many people very sick, dealing with their families, sales collapsed, um, all the things that so many people who own businesses went through during COVID. And I was driving in one day at five in the morning uh, on the four or five freeway, which was empty, like a twilight zone. And I realized I hadn't slept in three days. I was losing weight. I wasn't eating. I was not, you know, um, not in a good place. And I, I, it just hit me like, dude, you're the one who always tell people with the Superman thing, you got to take care of yourself. You know, some of us are better talkers than uh, taking our own advice. And so for the first time, I, I, I did. I went and saw my doctor. I met with a therapist. I got some medicine that I never thought I'd ever do. You know, I don't need to take, you know, Prozac, you know, you know, I've been through enough, but, you know, I got some anxiety and you know what? It got me through it. Um, it got me through it and it really kind of like the realization of all the stuff you've been talking about, you better do it, buddy. Cause so many people are relying on you, um, at work with your family. So that was my kind of big, so, you know, lesson from the pandemic. And I think we see that, you know, and I'm sure you guys talk about that a lot across the landscape of people reevaluating their lives. Is this what I want to do? Am I getting everything I want? You know, is working eight hours a week really going to, you know, something that's that, 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 that I need to do for the next 40 hour, 40 years or, or, or do I want to live life a little bit? So, you know, for me, taking care of yourself, doing all these other things is critical to, to not only having a better life, but being better at what you do. So that was my lesson and, and something I'm trying to continue to do 
as we kind of come back to some normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. Those are awesome lessons. And um, I think, you know, whether whether you're in a more prominent place in your career, in your life, or whether you're, you know, a person who kind of quietly goes about your your day to day, I think that we are hearing that the last few years have been an ongoing opportunity for people to reevaluate their priorities and and what they want to do. And, you know, there's nothing like, you know, having everything shut down and suddenly, you know, the things that you used to do to fill up your calendar, those aren't there anymore. And, and what are you left with? Well, you're left with those things that, you know, have the potential to be more permanent, like your family, your, your friends, your relationships, like, like what you were describing before. And, I think that your experiences are so unique in that you have these two halves in that you're, you know, you've, you've done things that would be more publicly recognizable. And then you've also been very focused on, you know, supporting your team in on the production line. And what I would hope people can take away from some of the things you've described is that whether the lessons came from the music industry or from other um, places of leadership, these lessons are equally applicable. I mean, you talked about you're only as good as your next record. Well, if anyone listening um, today feels like they're only as good as like the next quarter in the business, then I think there are a lot of crossover lessons there. And, and I really appreciate just how transparent you've been with, with some of those things that you've learned along the way. I had a moment, it was before the pandemic, but it was similar like that, what you described. And I love the analogy. It's perfect. The analogy, I'd never really thought about it that way, you know, for the, what, and and you're right. There's a lot of Superman songs and, but there's not. And I think that was what also resonated so much with, you know, especially uh, people, you know, Americans, uh, but probably people throughout the world, especially Americans that were saying, you know, we've, we've been this kind of superpower, right? And, you know, how often do we self-reflect and ask ourselves the question of, can we carry all this, right? And if as leaders, people are under that assumption, right, which that superhero mythology, I can do it all, um, you know, that it's just not real in the sense of now we can do, we can make sacrifices and we can, we can you know, give a lot and put it, leave it on the field. And I think you've just done a, you know, a really amazing job describing that, but like having that reflection, as Rob said, I think that's a really powerful lesson for a lot of people. Um, and maybe that ties into with a unifying theme of yours. Uh, and I, I'd be curious, like, you know, other, your other thoughts about this, where the power about the power of freedom, right. That people, and, you know, whether it's here in the United States, the freedom we enjoy uh, or countries that are fighting for it in, in, you know, in real time, right? Like the Ukraine uh, and, you know, what that, not only what that principle means for you, but also, you know, what was, what is it about that, that has, um, you know, that, that seems to keep emerging in, in your work and in how you live and, you know, uh, and of course, with with the military too, with your work and you know humanitarian work. But I'm curious about that. No, again, you know, as as someone who makes their living writing words and singing them, um, free speech is critical, <laughs> whether you like my song or not. And and we've had that blessing in this country. Um, and I do think it's easy to take it for granted. I think some of my experiences, especially with our soldiers, um, 
uh, early on in my career and, and um, seeing their sacrifice and then starting to work with Gold Star families who lose loved ones um, in war um, brought home to me um, that there is a cost. And, uh, and working uh, to kind of support them and, and, and um, do stuff with, whether it's, you know, Wood Warriors, Operation Homefront, there are a ton of charities, uh, and Gary's Foundation. Um, I kind of saw personally the, what our, our soldiers, first responders go through. And yes, I think uh, we can get complacent and we can lose sight of the big picture. I think we're such a tribal society now and, and, and we're such a kind of instant gratification, TikTok world. Everything is instantaneous. And here's the big, here's the big most important thing in the world till tomorrow. Here's the most important thing in the world. And we, we, we tend to argue and fight about some things that I would say they're not that they're not we're talking about, but big picture wise, um, what allows us to have those conversations? It's, <laughs> it's freedom, it's democracy, it's liberty. Um, all these things that are at, uh, under attack around the world. Um, it's funny, Chris, when you were, we were telling your story um, about leave it on the field. Uh, you know, one thing that I think with the pandemic has done has some of us who've been really maybe struggling with what we've been doing, we realized that we can change the field of play. Uh, I had to do that. You know, at some point as a songwriter, radio will not play you. And it came very quickly for me and it was very obvious. I was actually driving myself to a radio station to, to kiss a few babies to get some spins in, in Texas. 100 years came on. And I knew the song where I was working on What If wasn't going to go anywhere. And it hit me like, okay, what you were doing, it's done. You can continue to do that and be miserable like many of my buddies, my colleagues from the early 2000s <laughs> who are still trying to do it the old way, or you can change the field of play, um, and, and, and which I've done. But uh, for me, uh, one of my passions has been uh, the troops and freedom. And I've come at music a different way. I have, haven't been making records the last seven, eight years. Um, I've been exploring other things, um, you know, Broadway, television, stuff outside of music. But I've really still been passionate about supporting those who fight for freedom and causes around the world. And just interestingly, the last two songs I've written, the last two songs I've really put out in five years are directly to do with freedom. Um, one was called Blood on My Hands. It was about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which infuriated me, um, leaving our allies and Americans behind to the Taliban. And I wrote that song and put it out. And it's interesting when you kind of go with your gut and do things that people say are crazy and say, don't put that out. You, nobody will buy a ticket. And all of a sudden, you know, that song got more impressions um, and people heard it than uh, most of my hits besides Superman 100 Years without one radio spin. And more importantly, it became a voice for those feeling the same thing, our Afghan veterans who are just frankly um, broken after abandoning our allies, feeling nobody's speaking for them. We talk about success a lot. And a lot of times we think that is, you know, bank accounts, market share, stock price. And those things are certainly legitimate. But there is success in life um, that come in other ways. And, and having a song like Blood in My Hands do that, uh, the new song, Can One Man Save the World for Ukraine, you know, again, a song never got played on the radio, but here I am having this experience in Kyiv and 
and leading to, frankly, as we speak, trying to put together a concert for freedom in Poland next year. Um, all these things had nothing to do to write with trying to write a hit song for the radio. And sometimes when you, um, when you stretch out and really, and if you have the luxury, as I do, where I don't have to make a paycheck every week, um, I certainly understand some people have no choice. But if you get to a place in your career where you can extend your, your bandwidth to things that really matter to you, it can bring such joy and such satisfaction. You know, my friend Augie Nieto, talking about mentors, uh, Life Fitness was his company. In, in the 70s, he, he was the face of a fitness magazine, ran 28 marathons, made $200 million, married his high school sweetheart, um, got ALS, went from this icon to somebody like a Stephen Hawking who was sitting in a wheelchair typing with his foot. Um, with a two to three year lifespan expectation. Um, he wrote a book called Success to Significance. There are things that I think some people won't call successful that can be more significant to your life in the world. And this all comes back to freedom, right? All these things um, are uh, options because of the country we live in. I went down to, Guam, uh, to, to Gitmo. Uh, to play for our troops in Gitmo because nobody would go back in the day. It was tarnished, you know. You're, you know, you can't go down there. It's like you know, you're a bush lover. You know, they're torturing people. I went down there to play for our troops, and I'll never forget sitting there on the shores of of Gitmo and, and looking at a big, uh, big barbed wire fence with gun towers, and you know, Cuban soldiers with AK-47s up there, and going, you know, on that side of the fence, I can't do what I'm doing now. <laughs> and very few people can. And, um, and that changed me. And I think, again, that's, that's really put my focus now. I just this morning uh, had a conversation with some of the Iranian women who are standing up um, for their rights. Uh, there's so many tipping points in history now. Of course, Ukraine's the main one. Um, but I feel as artists, we have an obligation to do our thing. I can't drive a tank. I can't fly a plane. But I can write a song that can maybe shine the spotlight on, on the folks who deserve it. So um, for me, that's really my passion right now is supporting these, these whether it's Taiwan, whether it's um, the Uyghurs, whether it's, you know, Ukraine, um, standing up for, for them because it's a big world. And what happens over there eventually will come over here. We've seen this movie before. Um, be nice to bury our heads in the sand and, and, and you know, just hope it goes away, but we know that's not going to happen. So I wish more artists would be doing that. Um, frankly, uh, I looked at the concert in New York and saw everybody come together for that. I, I'm a little disappointed that this generation hasn't had that moment for, for Ukraine and, and Afghanistan and freedom. But all we can do is what we can do. And sometimes little things turn into big things. I saw that with Superman. Well, I love I love the connection points that you've made to the foundation of music, but then your your description of changing the field and uh, and exploring other options and maybe even you know shifting your focus and your purpose to something that's higher than um, record sales and uh, publicity. So I think that's a a beautiful note um, for us to end on. Is there anything else that you would have wanted to share today? No, I, again, I just think, uh, you know, to realize that we're all fallible, we're all human, we're going to make mistakes. And, um, and there's no shame in being ambitious and wanting to win. And, and um, that's, 
the American way. And that allows us to have resources to do things that help other people and to mentor other people. And, and we have guys, many of our guys here at Precision Wire, where I'm sitting right now, start at minimum wage sweeping floors. You know, now they're middle class, their kids are going to Princeton and Harvard. Um, the American dream is alive and well, uh, if you just turn the TV off. And uh, so I think, you know, having success yourself allows you to do more for other people. And wherever in your stage of life, if you're grinding early, you're making your bones, totally get it. But I do think, you know, success in life is not necessarily, as I said, um, data points. It's how do you feel? Are, are you inspired? Are you satisfied? My dad's 84, still comes to work, you know, 80 hours a week because he loves it and keeps him vital. And he's found his thing. And all of our things are different. It's different for each, each and every one of us. And I think it's always important to keep looking for those things and realize that the impossible is possible. And it's just sometimes takes a leap of faith to do that. And um, it can be hard, but I see a lot of people doing it now more than ever. And I think leadership is recognizing not only our own humanity, but that of those who we are leading um, and that they're not perfect and they're going to make mistakes. And we need to do our best to get the to give them the opportunity to be the best of themselves. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to John Androsik for the conversation today and for showing a steady example in such unsettled times. You can find more info about his music and his humanitarian work at fiveforfighting.com. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at Brave Corps, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of Brave Core LLC. Thanks for being with us.